religion at its root, and at its etymological root, means to make whole, to put back together, to reconnect, to rebind. So um, in the bigger picture, anything that is seeking wholeness or unification is religious. And we've narrowed our definition of religion to a particular set of doctrines, creeds, or dogma, that that is a religion when in fact anything that is seeking to make whole is a religious function. Welcome to the morning ritual. This is great. It's early, and I'm, I'm up, and uh, I'm really coming to love these, these mornings when I get to listen and think about these episodes. Today's participant is important to me. He was lecturing the evening. I decided to go into the doctoral program I went into, and he's written a book that I'll, we'll we'll talk about. And uh, I'm I'm grateful for his work. A couple of things I want to note f- before we get started is that. Uh, I'm really learning things I never thought I'd learn, and social media is one of them. So if if you're on there, I've I've put the put the podcast or this project up on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. So on any of those platforms, please go on there and like it and follow it and comment. Um, the more you do that, the better it is as far as findability is concerned. Search the Sacred Speaks on any of those platforms. So that would be greatly appreciated. James Durkitz, a podcast participant, made a comment on iTunes. Thanks, James. The music you're hearing is from Modern Nations. You can reach them at modernnationsmusic.com. Or the today's participant, Pittman McGeehy, you can get him at jpittmanmcgeehy.com. That's J-P-I-T-T-M-A-N-M-C-G-E-H-E-E.com. And any information on this podcast is on thesacredspeaks.com check out any of those. Pittman is an ordained priest. He was ordained in the Episcopal Church in 1969, and later, for 11 years, he served as the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral, located in the center of downtown Houston. Since moving to Houston in 1980, Pittman has been in demand as a lecturer and speaker in the fields of psychology and religion. He lectures regular, regularly at the C.G. Young Center and has published two papers through the center, Water as Symbol of Transformation and The Healing Wound and the Wounded Healer. He's held many distinguished lectureships, including the 1987 Harvey Lecture at the Episcopal Seminary in the Southwest in Austin, excuse me, Episcopal Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, where he received an honorary doctorate of divinity. He's got a list of a number of these things. He's, uh, he's an adjunct lecturer at the University of Texas. He's also the Carolyn Fay Lecturer, or 1996 Carolyn Fay Lecturer in Analytical Psychology at the University of Houston. 
He's an adjunct instructor at the at Saybrook University and a faculty member of the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland. His books are The Invisible Church, Finding Spirituality Where You Are, 2008, Raising Lazarus, The Science of Healing the Soul, 2009, Words Made Flesh, Selected Sermons by the Very Reverend J. Pittman McGee, 2011, and The Paradox of Love. Uh, he put out a wonderful DVD where he interviewed a young analyst and author, Robert Johnson. It's called Slender Threads, an interview with Robert Johnson. You can get any of these on Amazon, or you can look up the Young Center of Houston and, and go see Alyssa over there, and she would be happy to help you find one of these books. In addition to his teaching and prose writing, Pittman is known for his poetry. His work has been chosen for the juried Houston Poetry Fest, and his poems Pegasus and Semination were published in the Poetry Fest anthology. Let me see. I'm going to read through. He's got a lot of stuff here. Um, yeah, I think that does it. So we'll leave it there. Hello, Dr. Price. Hello. I, it's nice hearing that from your uh, from your lips in particular. <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations on completing your PhD. Thank you, thank you. It was. Uh, I think I, I, I'm. I'm. Well, I'm certain that you once said that um, uh, something to the effect of, <laughs> "I don't know what it's going to take, but if I need to hog tie you down, you're going to finish that sucker." And, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so here it is. You know, it's finished. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to hog tie you. <clears throat> me too. Uh, me too. Even though it, it it almost felt like it it uh, may have come to that. <laughs> so I, you know, of course, this is a meaningful conversation given our relationship, and this is one yeah. of the reasons why I love doing this kind of stuff, which is being able to talk to people who have been an influence to me that is, have thought interesting things and have compelling arguments, and um, you 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 go under those headings and so many more. And I'm just I'm excited to share it with you, Pittman. I, I appreciate you showing up in this way and being here. Glad to be in dialogue with you. So the first thing I want to start with is uh, years ago I read um, your book, uh, The Invisible Church, and it was an important book for me. It I think one of the main things I'm sure you've heard this before. I know you've heard it from me. Is it gave life to some imagery that had become pretty stale. For, yeah. For a long time. Um, I had explored a lot of different traditions and, you know, that kind of early imagery around the Christian tradition was off-putting and I struggled with it and it felt stale and, and, um, and that was sad, but I, of course, was into other things that were, I felt juicier. And then I read your book and then it, I think it did a really good job of revivifying some of those, um, symbols and some of the, it, it, it replenished uh, the ritual and you know and while I didn't become a you know daily churchgoer or anything I I was able to go into reading Christian texts with a very new way um, yeah. and so I'm grateful to you for that I think the the, the book did a wonderful job getting to that I, I think the first question I want to start with you know is if you would just talk a little bit about these three things that I'm really trying to zero in on which is religion and underneath that umbrella is the sacred and the secular. Well, let's start with uh, 
with the etymology of the word religion, you know, I uh, have kind of a avocation as an etymologist and somebody who's really interested in words. And I think that many times words not only lose their meaning, but they become the opposite of what they meant in the beginning. You know, we have been influenced in this culture by materialism. Materialism is not uh, that kind of shadow of capitalism where we try to fill our emptiness with material. Although I think they're related. Materialism, though, was a philosophy in the 19th century primarily that said if it... Uh, isn't matter, it doesn't matter. So things like the invisible, the mystical, uh, the invisible, the non-rational. And so in, in so many ways, words lost their meaning or became something, mean something different. For instance, in materialistic philosophy, the non-rational became irrational. The non-material became immaterial. And the myth turned into something that was not true, when in fact myth is a container of truth. So religion similar. The etymology of the word religion comes from the Latin legare. Legare means to connect or to bind. It's the same root for the word ligament. So legare is to connect, bind, uh, uh, unite. So religare, which is the root, religio is a root for religion, comes from legare. And the uh, idea of religare presumes something has been fractured, broken, estranged, alienated, and religare is putting it back together again. So religion at its root, and at its etymological root, means to make whole, to put back together, to reconnect, to rebind. So um, in the bigger picture, anything that is seeking wholeness or unification is religious. And we've narrowed our definition of religion to a particular set of doctrines, creeds, or dogma, that that is a religion when in fact anything that is seeking to make whole is a religious function. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm a Jungian analyst as well as an Episcopal priest is because I really like his psycho-spiritual worldview because he says that the vocation of the human being is to become whole, that individuation is a process toward wholeness. So anything that is a resource uh, that we can put in our backpack and carry with us on our journey that can be helpful for reuniting or making whole is religious. And we make these uh, uh, distinctions that I think are false uh, between what's religious and what's not. If we went to good and evil very quickly, which is, uh, you know, one of the most uh, overwhelming uh, dichotomies and polarities in the human experience, trying to figure out what good and evil are about is, is you know, a lifetime vocation. But in my current simple terms, 
good is a process toward wholeness. That what we consider to be good are the things that are contributing toward wholeness. What we consider things to be evil are things that are disintegrating toward nothingness. So the forces of energy that are loosed, those energies that are seeking wholeness, seeking unity, seeking uh, realignment, reconnectedness uh, toward wholeness are religious functions. And Jung said that there is a religious function to the psyche, that spirituality is about this idea of experiencing the numinous or the transcendent or the sacred or the holy, experiencing that as a uh, resource for and as an experience toward wholeness. So, um, bigger picture, religion has to do with becoming whole. And anything that is religious for me is uh, whatever is seeking wholeness for us. And um, uh, to, to dis dissuade the idea that a religion is a, a creedal formulation or a set of doctrines and dogma, uh, those are institutions that are coalesced around a common worldview and a, an experience of the divine for the community. Uh, but that's not limiting uh, the religious function to one set of dog, dog, dogma doc, doctrines or sacred stories. Um, so in this viewpoint, <clears throat> all of the great traditions are... Uh, uh, of equal value in terms of uh, being a resource for wholeness. One of the, the uh, one of the things I say in the book is that uh, that any anything that is divisive or anything that is disintegrative is not religious. Is not religion, and so much has been done in the name of religion, which is not religious. <laughs> uh, that it is you know uh, destructive. Uh, being a priest and an analyst, I see a lot of people who've been terribly wounded by religion. And it's not religion that wounds them, it's the uh, stewards uh, of the set of stories and symbols that are abusive with them. I've always been amazed that the Christian story, which is primarily a gospel of love, uh, could be used to shame uh, and uh, punish. Now, that leads us to a bigger question. Maybe not a bigger question, a different question. And that is kind of the thesis of my book. And that is that the two archetypes that we project onto the church uh, are mother and father. And so, in order to understand how people have been wounded by the church or by religion, in that narrow sense of the word, we have to look at the mother and father archetype and that the archetype of mother has a dark side of infantilization and dependency, dark side of the mother. The dark side of the father is exclusive and punitive. So the last thing for this sort of introductory uh, part of the dialogue that so much of what we see as religion is really negative father punitive and exclusive. 
Father sets up the rules. If you do not abide by the rules or the codes, then you're either punished or you're uh, excluded. I never understood why we would excommunicate somebody. Uh, there's the time they need to be eating at the family table most. And that's that exclusive, punitive nature of the dark side of the Father. And the church has never owned its dark side. Part of what I was doing in the book was having uh, to expose, kind of in a psychoanalytic way, to analyze the church and its uh, mother and father complex. So we're off to a good start. Where does this lead? Well, uh, so it, I'm circling things as I'm listening to you talk. I, mm -hmm. uh, I taught a class recently where I I told <laughs> I, I told everybody that look, I got a doctorate in uh, Jungian psychology, and I'm still blown away at how much I don't know about definition of terms. Mm -hmm. So I think that's such a, I'm with you, the etymology and the foundation. So I'm wondering if we could put some, um, uh, just real simple terms. You're, you're mentioning some words like wholeness, the divine, archetypes, and individuation. Could you start uh -huh. with wholeness? What do you think that is? Yeah. Well, I think we don't really fully know what wholeness is because I think death is a requirement for wholeness. And so pre-grave, I think it is the integration of all that we are and the essence of whom we are. Now, Jung had a, a very uh, enigmatic term called the true self, and uh, this is the capitalized self, capital S. And so the self really is pretty much uh, an explanation of what wholeness looks like because the self is a paradoxical concept of both essence and totality. So that the true self is the essence of what it means to be you. As I say poetically, that at your conception, there was a concept. And your life is to become that concept. What, what concept was at your conception. And so your life is a commentary on becoming that uh, true self. And in order to, at the same time, become that true self, there are lots of uh, inauthentic, uh, questionable, mistaken uh, traumas, tragedies, so forth, that, that occur in our path, in our uh, trying to become true to self. And so the, that wholeness includes all of those things. So we do not uh, repress, suppress, eliminate, deny, or project all of those things about ourselves. We accept them and integrate them, and it makes us people of substance, soulfulness, and wholeness. As the old saying goes, if one learns from a mistake, it's not a mistake. And to become conscious of and integrate those things make us whole. And all the fragmented parts of ourselves are pulled together in the true self, the authentic self. So wholeness is about selfhood. And um, from a psycho-spiritual worldview, particularly from the Jungian worldview, that uh, our vocation, our calling, is not to be priest or lawyer or physician. Our calling is to become that true, authentic, autonomous, inner authority, 
that we were created to be. And that religion, John, is the tools or the guidelines or the maps or the, the resources for that process of individuation. And so we look at the sacred stories of our people and learn about the archetypes, those are the predisposed patterns of human behavior. We look at, at what has gone on and their reflections upon it and use those as guides for our own process of individuation. So I think that, uh, for instance, my religion is uh, Christianity, the Judeo-Christian myth. I believe that ultimately in the big picture, the Judeo-Christian myth is about uh, becoming whole and that Jesus is a symbol of the true authentic self. He represents the possibility of authentic human existence. And because he lived a life of wholeness, he became that which he was created to be. And um, so that's what wholeness looks like to me, is the true authentic self in its paradoxical, paradoxical nature of essence and totality. But I think that... Uh, that uh, we don't become whole before we die. I think death is the uh, important contributing factor to our wholeness. Where does, just curiously, where does religion get off the track? You said, you know, all these horrible things done in religion. Your critique uh, in the book and now, where does it go yeah. on? Well, you know, during... Uh, during Prohibition, uh, it was concluded that the problem was not in the bottle. It was in the human beings. Uh, so you get rid of the bottle, you don't get rid of the problem. The problem with religion is not religion, it's the human beings. The stewards of the sacred stories and the myth, the leaders, the authorities, the, the uh, hierarchy, you know, hieros is sacred and archy has to do with order so hierarchy is the sacred order so the the problem with religion the way religion gets off track is because of the human beings that are in charge of the religion uh, their misinterpretations their exploitations uh, and uh, let me give you kind of a historical for instance uh, John Calvin uh, believed that he was trying to work with the problem of why certain people accepted Christ as their Savior, their Lord, their symbol, and some people didn't. So he came up with this theory of predestination or the elect. And he's saying that evidently some people are predestined to accept Christ, or they are the elected. And so they ask him, well, now, how do we know who the elect are? And he said, well, by their fruits, you shall know them. So all of a sudden, we're off and running to the Protestant uh, Reformation and Protestant ethic. And the Protestant ethic is you prove you're the elect by producing. By their fruits, you shall know them. Well, where I grew up, fruits were produce. You know, you went to the produce department at the at the grocery store. So... The idea of the Protestant ethic is production. And then it gets integrated with capitalism. And so, you know, the misinterpretation, the 
poor doctrine, uh, you know, can, can be accepted by the collective and have a great influence on the culture. And that led to Puritanism. And Puritanism uh, was part of that Protestant idea of be productive and follow the rules. And, you know, the old saying is Puritanism, uh, as its basic tenet, felt that there was somebody out there somewhere having a good time. Uh, and that was bad. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that it's the misinterpretation or it's the authorities who have authored uh, the tradition around the sacred story. For instance, one of the great arguments or one of the great uh, studies that needs to go on and on and on is St. Augustine's idea of original sin. Uh, he studied in Persia with a philosopher named Mani. And Manichaean philosophy felt that the flesh was bad and the spirit was good. And so we had to control the flesh and, you know, control our nature, control our instincts. And that had a great influence on St. Augustine. And so uh, he was very interested in uh, controlling our instinctuality and went on to say that uh, sin is original for all of us. And by sin, uh, he really meant uh, using our instincts uh, for self-gratification and trying to play God or trying to be God. And so we have inherited in the, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, much more the Christian tradition, this idea that we're fundamentally something wrong with us, uh, that we're sinners, and that only the sacrifice and atonement of God owns save us from our sinful humanity. Well, uh, at the risk of being heretical or at the joy of uh, being heretical, uh, I don't believe in original sin, and I think original sin has really been destructive for the collective consciousness of Western Christianity. And um, so those are some examples of where it goes wrong. It goes wrong because of the human beings that are stewards of the stories or the interpreters of the stories who are the authorities. And we can go on and on. I'm not a church historian, but it doesn't take reading much church history to realize that, you know, this religion that we inherited called Christianity uh, has been greatly influenced by the psychopathology of the human beings who are in charge of it. And uh, goodness gracious, we look at the polarities and realize that something can become its opposite very quickly if we're not careful. So we have this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Prince of Peace, God of love, that we want you to have. And we want you to be have it so badly that if you don't accept it, we're going to kill you. That's called the Crusades. So uh, it's the human beings that are the problem. It's not the religion. So you said um, something, sin, your definition of sin, using our instincts to... Yeah, for self-gratification. Self-gratification. I, I immediately yeah. thought about sexuality. Yeah, of course. How That's the this. best example. Uh, I kind of have to go off on a little tangent here, which I Please. do very well. <laughs> Oh, that's my stock and trade is tangential speaking. <laughs> I follow it. Uh, <laughs> my definition of spirituality is the deep human longing, 
Now that's archetypal. Anything that has collective longing to it is an archetype. Deep human longing. Spirituality is a deep human longing to transfer the transcendent into the eminent through experience and reflection upon it. Deep human longing to transfer the transcendent into the eminent. And eminent is pronounced uh, the same whether we're spelling it I-M-M-A or I-M-M-I. There's just a subtle difference in eminent and eminent. Uh, one means indwelling and the other means near at hand. So we want the transcendent, the sacred, God, numinous, meaning, mystery, whatever synonym we use for that presence of the holy, of the transformative. Uh, we want to experience that. And so we can have it indwelling or near at hand, doesn't make any difference. What we want is to experience it and then reflect upon it. And to reflect upon it is to integrate it. And we reflect upon it uh, through stories generally, a narrative of, of my experience of the holy or the transcendent. So the sacred for me, uh, well, let me go on one other place, and that is so the mystic for me uh, is not one who's out in Sedona, Arizona, chanting and rubbing crystals together. The mystic for me is one who expects to experience the transcendent in his or her ordinary life. So that I don't have to go to the monastery or the mountaintop. I don't have to go to uh, the cathedral uh, or, you know, the holiest place to experience. I can experience the transcendent in my ordinary life. The title of my second book of poetry is called The Extraordinary and the Ordinary. So I experienced the extraordinary and the ordinary. So the threefold mantra of the mystic is I expect to experience the extraordinary and the ordinary, the miraculous and the mundane, and the sacred camouflaged in the profane. And I know that's a real interest of yours, this idea of secular and sacred. And for me, um, the best example, what I'm hitchhiking on here, is human sexuality. I know of nothing that is more sacred that is considered by puritanical Protestantism as sinful than human sexuality. And um, I think it's promoted, uh, it's promoted with the God of love because what we're attempting to do in human sexuality is to make love. Now, what we do know is there's a difference between having sex and making love. I'm saying that the uh, sacred's camouflage in the profane, and there's nothing in the puritanical Protestant Christianity, well, even Roman Catholic Christianity, uh, there's nothing more sinful than sex. Well, you know, sex, sex is a natural part of the human programming. It's instinctual. But we can elevate sex to the sacred by looking at it as a way to experience the transcendent in another that we seek um, eros is ego to ego and agape, uh, which is uh, unconditional love, uh, is between true self and authentic self. So when I'm making love, I am tr trying to experience the other's true authentic self. So the sacred is in the profane and uh, the secular is sacred in that sense. So I don't make that distinction between 
You do know that the word profane used to be uh, reserved for that which was outside the temple. So the sacred was in the temple and then everything else that was out there was profane. I think that that distinction needs to be broken down and integrated so that we can find the sacred and the profane. I mean, we, you don't have to talk about human sexuality. I mean, profane means something that's instinctual and outside the realm of sacrificial sacredness. Well, what about our appetite for food? I mean, we have on Maslow's hierarchy of values, once we have satiated our appetite, uh, then we can use it as a symbol. So if I call you and say, let's go get something to eat, it's not because we're hungry. It's because I hunger for you. I hunger to ingest you. I want to know you. I want to be with you. Uh, so we take the appetite, the instinct for food, then we can elevate it to a symbol. And that is, I want to eat with you. I want, and you know, in some cultures, you won't eat with somebody that you don't have a, uh, that you, it's outside your tribe. And so uh, eating can be a way of knowing, connecting, belonging. Then you take it up the next level, it can become sacred because the one central act of Christians on Sunday morning is eating a meal together. It's called the Eucharist. And so we've gone from appetite to symbol to sacred. And then once you uh, see that uh, the food is sacred, that it carries the symbolic presence of the transcendent, then you can see that, that when we're having a meal together, it can be Eucharistic, or that, that appetite that we have can lead us uh, to experiencing the spiritual or the sacred. And so appetites can lead us to God, whether it's sex or food. Um, and to not make that distinction of sacred and profane or sacred and secular, uh, we miss a lot of the sacred when we um, don't keep our eyes and ears open for the presence of the extraordinary in our ordinary lives, the miraculous and the mundane. Uh, people say to me, what do you mean by miraculous and mundane? And I say, have you ever been at the birth of a baby? Nothing more mundane. There's nothing more miraculous. I said that one time in a lecture, and a man came up to me afterwards and introduced himself and said that he was an obstetrician. He had delivered 380 babies, and not one of them had he ever considered anything less than miraculous. Wow. Yeah. So uh, the miraculous is in the mundane. I uh, moved to Austin, Texas, three almost three and a half years ago because both of my sons and my four grandchildren are here. And um, I find myself, when my grandson or my granddaughter, when one of my grandchildren walks into a room, grabs me around the legs and hugs me, I get a, a rush of good chemicals in my brain and have this great sense of well-being. Wellness and wholeness are synonyms. And so that sense of well-being, that miraculous and the mundane, the extraordinary and the ordinary, a little child grabbing my leg. And at the same time, it's an experience of the transcendent or the holy. God is love, and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. 
So when I'm dwelling in love, whether it's making love or getting a hug from my grandchild, uh, I'm dwelling in God and God's dwelling in me. Uh, so uh, I see the sacred, the holy, the young love, the term numinous, because it has to do with sacred energy, holy energy, transformative energy. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't have to go to church uh, in the literal sense of the building, uh, you know, the box with a cross on top. I don't have to go there to experience the transcendent. Uh, that's why I wrote the book, The Invisible Church. And the subtitle is Finding Spirituality Where You Are. And so I'm still a member of the church. I'm a priest of the church. I still uh, have my holy orders. I still do Eucharist and baptisms and marriages uh, because the church is the place. It's a steward of the story. And so I still I want to keep the story alive and the mystery present. Those are two of the things that the priest does is keep the story alive and keep the mystery present. And I do as much priestcraft in my practice as a psychoanalyst as I did when I was dean of Christ Church Cathedral in Houston. Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm about the task of trying to help people become whole. Well, and that's, that's actually a question I want to get into. What's the difference? What do you notice from you know, when you were the dean and when you became a Jungian analyst and people were coming to you? Well... Um, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes people come to me because I am a priest, uh, because they've been wounded by religion, uh, and they're seeking some kind of reparation of that wound or some kind of, you know, there's an old saying, the only thing that heals a bad religion is a good religion. You know, that, uh, that, that they've been wounded. So some people come see me because I'm a priest, but I've had a lot of people in my practice and I'm not sure they knew I was a priest. Uh, you know, I've had Muslims and, you know, atheists and agnostics and a lot of Jews have been in my practice. So it's, you know, what they're seeking is a modality for wholeness, a resource for wholeness, a methodology that helps them with whatever estrangement they're feeling from themselves or from life. Uh, and so in some ways... What I do as a Jungian psychoanalyst and what I did as a priest are not different. Uh, it's just what you acknowledge it to be. And I think uh, in some ways psychoanalysis is, uh, is a, a, a new priesthood. So I don't make that distinction very much. One of the things that, one of the things that's nice is I don't have to run a $3 million <laughs> organization. <laughs> You don't have to go get money. You have to get money no. in other ways. I get to spend all the money I raise. <laughs> so you said uh, appetites can lead to God, and you said sex and food. And my thought mm -hmm. when you said that was, and, and that's a, uh, a slippery slope, mm -hmm. you know, oversexed, obsessive, uh, concerned, neurotic, anxious, same thing with food, where food becomes something else. What can you say about that? It's a sub well, it's worse. we're substituting. In other words, we have a sense of emptiness or we have a sense of anxiety. We want the anxiety satiated. The very first cessation of pain that a human being experiences is food. Uh, 
So you've got this uh, pain in your stomach as an infant, and your mother puts you on her breast, and you are soothed by food. And so the thing that soothes anxiety and pain for us many times is food. And we uh, use food for that or abuse food for that. I always thought it was interesting that the first food that's, that soothed our anxiety or pain was white. And most of the comfort food we use is white. Mm-hmm. You know, pasta, ice cream, mashed potatoes, mm. gravy. I mean, mm. those are all white. <laughs> Somebody came up to me, argued with me, and said, well, what about meatloaf? <laughs> I said, well, it's the mashed potatoes. <laughs> no, but so, so we soothe ourselves, and what we're doing is substituting the food for what we're really looking for is the higher understanding of what the food might represent uh, sacramentally. And uh, same thing with sex. You know, we soothe ourselves with sex rather than using it are uh, allowing it to use us uh, in experiencing the transcendent or the holy. So I think maybe food and sex can be abused uh, because we're expecting it to soothe uh, anxiety or to fulfill emptiness, and it really doesn't. That's where our, you know, that's where our habitual or addictive behavior comes uh, is in satiating that those appetites and becoming dependent upon them to manage our anxiety rather than using consciousness uh, and other healthy uh, spiritual exercises or uh, psychological hygiene to soothe the anxiety and the emptiness rather than putting food and sex as a substitute. What do you mean by that when you say consciousness? I'm trying to know what's making me anxious. Mm. I mean, I'm running, you know, the difference between fear and anxiety is uh, fear has an object. I'm afraid of snakes. Uh, I'm afraid of uh, spiders. Anxiety is a fear without an object. I'm afraid, but I don't know what it is I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of being out of control. I'm afraid of, you know, being rejected or abandoned or whatever. So it doesn't really have a, a clear object to it. So anxiety is that kind of chronic fear uh, without an object. So consciousness is objectifying the anxiety, finding out what it is I'm afraid of. Mm, I like that. Uh, Yeah. Um, And naming it and then addressing it, uh, you know, dealing with it. Uh, We all have some form of abandonment anxiety. Well, let's enter into and talk about when when have you been abandoned? What was your experience? What's your experience of abandoning others? Uh, and, you know, just trying to get into consciousness some of the unconscious things that are causing anxiety and without having to get into the structure and dynamics of Jungian psychoanalytic theory, we have what are called complexes, and these complexes create a lot of anxiety for us, but they're unconscious. And so bringing them into consciousness really helps deal in a more creative, healthy way with the anxiety. Well, it's a new... um so I've, I've been doing these just a couple interviews so far, and that's a new term, complex. I, I think that's an important one to define. What do, you, uh, what do you mean when you say that? Well, this is a semester course, but um, <laughs> you took it, by the way. Didn't yeah, you? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was 
one of John's professors in his PhD program. Um, archetypes are predisposed patterns of human behavior. They're in the collective unconscious, which means we all have them. Uh, there are deep longings, there are needs, there are things that are drives, that Freud would call them drives. They're the things in us that we all have that we need to experience in order to have the human experience. We need a mother, we need a father. Um, and all the derivatives off of those archetypes, like you know, hero and victim and all those different images of archetypes, uh, appear in literature, fairy tales, nursery rhymes, on and on again. So the archetypes are ubiquitous, as it were. And so when we experience one of those archetypes, energy will coalesce around the archetype. And so complex really has to do with energy that is constellated around uh, a, an archetype. And the two primary archetypes are mother and father. So we all have a mother complex and a father complex. When Jung first started his uh, theoretical model, he called it complex psychology. And he did away with it because most people thought complex meant difficult and hard to understand. Well, complex is what he meant was like an apartment complex, something surrounding a center. Uh, so he couldn't use complex psychology. But he was very interested in complexes and really did a lot of definitive work around the complexes. And so I'll give you an example of the mother complex so that everybody has a need for a mother. It's archetypal. You have a need for a mother. I have a need for a mother. And your need for a mother is exactly like my need for a mother. It's the same, no different. It's archetypal. But I have a different personality from you. You know, we could do the Myers-Briggs extrovert, introvert, thinking, feeling, sensation, uh, intuition. So I have a different predisposition for my interpretation of an experience. And then I have a different experience from you. I had a biological mother named Ruth, and you had a biological mother with a, her own name. And so you had a different experience of mother from the one I had. So we have a deep need for a mother, but we also have an experience of a mother. And the experience of our mother will never fulfill our archetypal need. Uh, in simple terms, we can never fulfill an archetypal need with anybody outside us. Nobody outside us can fulfill our archetypal need for them. So my mother, you know, is 22 years old when I was born. Uh, she's depressed. She's separated from her mother. She's, you know, this post-adolescent neurotic woman, and she can't fulfill all of my needs for security, belonging, containment, safety, connectedness, relatedness, all the functions of the mother. Uh, she can't fulfill all of those. So I develop a complex of energy around the archetype, and that's called the mother complex. And the complex has within it a lot of feeling tone. And one of the main feeling tones of a complex is anxiety. And so uh, in a non-rational way, uh, I have this abandonment anxiety because maybe my mother wasn't there for me at a certain particular time in my life or I had a bad experience of abandonment say she had to go to the hospital or say that she was an alcoholic or a drug addict 
that she wasn't there for me, so I have an abandonment complex, and it creates a lot of anxiety for me, and really makes a lot of my relationships with others, or with my own children, or uh, with uh, siblings, it makes these difficult relationships because I have this fear of abandonment. I have this abandonment anxiety. Now, so if we can bring that anxiety to consciousness, uh, we tend to take away some of the, the energy from that complex uh, through making it conscious. And uh, when we begin to feel that familiar feeling tone, we can say, I'm in a complex or I'm going into a complex. And we have a lot better sense of being live a less neurotic or anxious life if we're conscious. And so that's what we mean by complex. And that's why your question earlier about what do we mean by consciousness is trying to get that unconscious content into consciousness. And uh, find all these archetypal uh, experiences of people. Um, and we learn that uh, the only mother that can really fill up, fulfill us is the great mother, which is, a, is an archetype. So I'm, I'm curious, my, as we're going through complexes, I'm of course thinking of people that I connect with in my own practice and curious about your experience of this, not only as a priest, but an analyst. Where are the places where people suffer that you see the most? Well, I'll just listen to one of them, which is abandonment. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is overwhelmment. The feeling of being overwhelmed. Uh, the two primitive fears that the child has are abandonment and uh, overwhelmment. I'm not big enough to handle. I'm not smart enough. Uh, I'm not competent enough. I'm not confident enough. So overwhelmment would be the other place that people... Uh, and I think there's a collective overwhelmment complex going on now because life has gotten so difficult and complex and overstimulated and so forth. So I think a lot of us feel a sense of uh, overwhelmment. I think there's a lot of anxiety around um, the inability to control. Uh, Control, as far as I'm concerned, is an ego illusion that we have no control. Uh, that uh, we have limited control over how we respond to what happens to us. We don't have any control over what happens to us. You know, we can get hit by a beer truck at any time. Uh, our primary relationships, uh, we can suffer deaths and loss at any time. So I think another form of anxiety that we have is uh, inability to control or lack of control. Uh, I'm very conscious of it when I go on a trip. If I'm going, say, go lecture somewhere, uh, I have put my hands in the, in the control of all kinds of things over which I have none. You know, the weather, uh, the airplane, the pilot, uh, the schedule, the illness uh, you know I've started off and gone on lecture tours a couple of times I've gotten sick you know and so there's just so when I get ready to go on a trip I find my anxiety going up and uh, so I try to ritualize that journal it or do some physical or spiritual exercise to try to deal with the anxiety 
uh, or the Buddhists have been really, really helpful in uh, helping us to learn to live mindfully, which is to live in the moment rather than living in the future about what might happen or what could happen. Uh, so abandonment um, and uh, lack of control and overwhelmment would be the three major areas in which I see uh, people being anxious. So I'm uh, I'm aware of time and I'm wanting to consciously close out. Mm-hmm. My my curiosity is is you know given this project I guess is my my personal curiosity. How or what? How did the, the writing the book of the Invisible Church? How did that affect you? What did you learn about you? Uh, well, the first thing is it was a discipline to try to put together uh, a kind of opus um, of my work, which has been trying to develop a psycho-spiritual worldview. I want to credit my uh, co-author as a man named Damon Thomas, who was a student of mine, who really kind of implored me to uh, start writing some of this down because I've made a career out of lecturing, uh, do a lot of teaching, a lot of lecturing. And uh, he said, you know, Pittman, we need to get this down. And well, he turns out he's an editor. So we took... Uh, Several that I taught at the Young Center and at the and met on Saturday mornings for a year and just batted them back and forth and and he did the the editing of the transcripts and then I would edit his edits and we finally got it together and it's a very good uh, systematic I think uh, reflection on my worldview uh, of psycho spirituality. The second thing is that. Um, um, there were two responses to the book in the main from people who've read it uh, and communicated with me. The first one was, I didn't know I could think like this. I didn't know that you know I could think this way, symbolically, mythologically, uh, experientially. Um, and the other one is that uh, <clears throat> part of the thing, the thing I say in the book over and over again is that good Christianity authorizes people to become their own authorities. And the ability for somebody to become his or her own authority uh, is amazing to me how freeing that can be for people. Uh, As threatening as it is, uh, it is at the same time very freeing. Um, And I guess I kind of wanted to leave the place a little cleaner than I found it, so the book is you know, sort of my contribution to um, the conversation. I think you writing that was paying attention in a profound way to this energy that we're talking about, this religious energy, this... Yeah. uh, And and the act of writing it down was the act of engaging with a direct experience of something that is transcendental. So well, yeah, I think it's right. So what my 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 next question is, you know, when you know you kind of work on the book, and of course it's working you also, but then you 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 finish it and it goes away, and then it still has a way of working on you and you on it. So that's kind of what I'm. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, w- one of the things in order to be creative, John, you have to get your ego out of the way. 
uh, and uh, you know, opening uh, writing a book like this, which is it's got some fairly strong opinions in it. Uh, I'm pretty critical of fundamentalism and Roman Catholicism uh, in terms of the authoritarian abuse that's come from authoritarian religions. Um, and so they're, you know, people are asking me all the time, what do fundamentalists think about your book? And I said, they don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're vulnerable to people disagreeing with you and, and uh, you know, calling you heretical. Uh, but so you just have to kind of get your ego out of the way because you are vulnerable when you write a book. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's been a little, uh, what should I say, not easier, but less threatening than I thought it would be. Uh, somebody disagrees with me, I'm, I'm, if, if I'm going to have inner authority, I want to grant them that same inner authority. They don't have to see the world the way I do or agree with me. Uh, so it's been less threatening uh, than I thought it might be when people disagree with me. And that's been a good experience. Thank you. Any advice? I mean, I, this is kind of a personal, personal experience, personal research. Uh, I'm, I'm curious and engaged and engaging those people that I'm interested in talking with. You got any uh, words of wisdom? Direction? About what? about my pursuit here, uh, the, sec the sacred and the secular. Oh, no, I just think it's a, a very important contemporary conversation to be in. Uh, I think the idea of uh, um, not making polarities either or, but realize that in a non-dual mind, uh, we can find uh, two things at once which are opposites, both of which have meaning. And that uh, we've gotten so polarized and polarities are a reality. And I think we need to be aware uh, of the value of each pole and try to integrate them into a higher consciousness rather than simply moving back and forth between either or. Uh, Jung said it's never either or, it's either and or. And it, it re really... Part of what I think religion's about is integrating the opposites, holding the paradox consciously. I've always thought that it's interesting that the one thing the church has consist consistently upheld is a paradox. And that is that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully human. That can't be. And so to hold the polarities of sacred and secular, of... Uh, of uh, sacred and profane, to hold those polarities consciously, you begin to expand your consciousness to see a lot of things that uh, we've not participated in or feared or judged or whatever else, hold within the merit. And so uh, I think uh, being able to have a non-dual mind to think paradoxically uh, is important. The, the Zen philosopher Suzuki said, if it's not paradoxical, it's not true. So the whole time, all I hear in that is permission from uh, from you to go live out the sinner and the saint. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 <laughs> we're 
teach both. Yeah, I take that. Thanks a lot, Pittman, for being here today. You're more than welcome. Thanks for uh, including me in this conversation, and thanks for having the conversation. Yeah, you're on. I look forward Great. to the next time. Okay. Bye. Wait.